There are 550 years of Rinaldi's on these walls, and I will be up there next to my father. I'm sure I want my chance to make a difference as a ruler. Welcome to the Graveyard Slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sohini. And I'm Sarah, and today we're talking about The Princess Diaries 2. Five years after discovering her royalty, Mia now faces ascension to the throne only to have her path hindered by an outdated law. Sacrificing her desire for love, she plays along with what is asked of her and tries to find a husband in 30 days, while a villainous Viscount and his nephew try to sabotage her efforts. This movie was released in 2004, directed by Gary Marshall, of course, who also did The First Princess Diaries and Pretty Woman, among many other movies, and the screenplay was by Shonda Rhimes, a well-known producer and writer who did Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and many any other incredibly successful TV shows. So by Sarah's standards, this movie is 100%. However, Rotten Tomatoes seems to think otherwise because the movie has a 26% critic rating. That's insane. I'm honestly not as shocked as you are, and I don't necessarily believe that it deserves a higher rating. Interesting. This is compared to 49% for the first movie. Insane. <laughs> which is insane. I agree with that. <laughs> But yeah, we both grew up with this movie, but we're coming at it from kind of different perspectives because I seem to forget this movie every time <laughs> I finish watching it. So as coming at it from kind of a new perspective, while Sarah has a lot of nostalgia for it, so we thought that would be interesting to compare our perspectives. And also this movie was a request from one of our listeners. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, we would love to take more movie requests if anyone has them. Yeah. Someone wanted to see our take on the second movie. So here we are. And looks like we'll get a pretty lively debate. So <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of debate, would you like to enter your side of the argument? <laughs> I purposely picked a somewhat nicer view. So this one is from the Globe and Mail and it reads, like the first movie, Princess Diaries 2 relies primarily on the chemistry and screen appeal of Andrews and Hathaway to elevate the storytelling above the level of mush. Which I think is fair. Like, it's not entirely a compliment perhaps, but I think it's true that the heart of this movie is the chemistry between our two main leads, which was the case for the first movie. And I think even though a lot of things made the first movie an amazing movie, the material, which was already good, if it had been performed any other way, it could have fallen flat. So I think that much I agree with. Yeah, I can agree with that. The key difference here though is, as you said, the first movie already had a lot going for it. And the performances, especially by... Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews, they were the cherry on top. Whereas for this movie, I agree with the review. The performances could be considered the only saving grace of this movie, I think. Like, I don't think I can praise much else. The review I wanted to talk about is from the Boston Globe, and it says, Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews again star, and Gary Marshall returns as director. The only things missing are a script, a pulse, and a reason why. <laughs> That's such a great <laughs> snappy review. I agree with it. It really resonated with me because once I look past everything, there really doesn't seem to be a reason for this movie to exist. It's not like it adds anything essential. A lot of reviews also seem to imply or directly say that this was basically a money grab and an opportunity to turn this into a franchise, basically, which I don't know if I would go that far because it's not like it just turned into like a 
soulless sequel with, for example, like the Jurassic Park franchise. But I still don't think this was a movie that necessarily needed to be made. As always, we will be discussing this movie chronologically, and we start with the opening, which is Mia's graduation. She majored in diplomacy and political science, and then she flies back to Genovia, and it's been five years since the first movie. Yeah, and in the opening scene, she's writing in her diary, and we get some exposition about what has happened since the first movie. I'm not too fond of the voiceover introducing the characters and the situation. The best I can say is that at least it's a tool that's used multiple times throughout the movie, but it's always to introduce background information and never as an interesting storytelling tool. So I would have liked to see something a little bit more creative if they were gonna do something like this. It actually doesn't come back at the end. Not at all. <laughs> the part where she's been coronated and she like winks at everybody or whatever, that should be when the narration comes back in, but it doesn't. It would have been much better if it were a full circle moment, but yeah, no. And also I'm being a little bit generous when I say multiple times. She writes in it two or three times. And it's a long movie. It is a long movie. But yeah, we learned that Mia will be taking over as Queen of Genovia within a year and it's a little bit jarring to see Mia be so attached to Genovia considering the last time we saw her she barely knew of its existence let alone know that she's from there and is <laughs> in line to be the queen. Maybe there could have been some hints about her visiting Genovia throughout her degree and learning the ropes from her grandmother. Maybe some pictures in her diary or something that she looks back on. Yeah. So actually during the voiceover, I wish it had been more about what she has been doing since so that it can be about how her relationship with Genovia has developed. But yeah, in the voiceover, she says, the queen will step down from the throne this year and Mia will take over now that she's 21. I wonder which of the two is the main cause. Like the queen stepping down because now Mia is 21 and so it's time for her to take over or she can now take over when the queen steps down. You know what I'm saying? It sounds like she means the former but it does beg the question. <laughs> if there's some kind of law or tradition that the heir must resume the throne at 21 and we know queens aren't so far allowed to rule without a husband, it effectively creates a kingdom that legally has to marry off their crown princesses at a really young age. Like, isn't that insane? And historically, far from special for monarchies, but an interesting tidbit nonetheless, and perhaps telling of the state of Genovia and its culture, either in the recent past or at present. I think it also paints a foundation to work off of, and very subtly introduces this idea of the need for change, which becomes a main player once the movie gets underway. That's a great point. This kind of relates to one of my main problems problems with the movie, which is that I don't think there's enough of an emphasis on this main conflict when it comes to Mia's storyline. Because yes, it's true that she's fighting back against these outdated traditions and she's trying to overcome the challenges that come with it and everything. But because there is so much of a central focus on the romantic storyline, I feel like that kind of undermines the importance of this particular conflict. I think if they had spent a little bit more time depicting Mia and Clarice dealing with this situation, I think 
like there could have been a lot more depth and they could have brought up this very issue that you're talking about where basically women are mandated to marry by age 21 otherwise they lose what is rightfully theirs which is so unfair <laughs> i feel like it comes up once when they have that parliamentary session near the beginning of the movie but then it's not really brought up again until the very end of the movie when Mia makes her speech to everyone. They missed the opportunity to explore this topic. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I don't think I agree because like all of the stuff that she's going through in the movie is dealing with that conflict. Like the Nicholas thing is also like, it's the main conflict. Like he's actively trying to sabotage her and steal the crown and like... Yes, the struggle on the surface is they're vying for the throne, but I just feel like the political aspect is undermined by what ultimately happens which is that she falls in love with Nicholas and ends up with him and he represents her true desire so to speak like her desire for true love. I think what's happening is that his scheme is the seduction of Mia and so it becomes like the romance plot but the romance plot is the scheme plot which is maybe why I see it as like all of the stuff with Nicholas isn't exactly like a romance haplot. I agree. It's not separated from the politics of it. It's just that I think Nicholas standing for who Mia wants to choose is the problematic part of it. I think why I disagree is I don't think he stands for that. I don't think throughout the movie that we want her to be with Nicholas because the stuff he's doing is not romantic. It's mean. The way I read the movie, like him seducing Mia, we don't swoon. We hate him because he's being mean. Well, the thing is Mia swoons. I would compare his arc with Mia with, I think his name is Josh or something, the popular guy in the first movie because he also flirts with Mia, tries to use her, and she also has that foot popping thing with him. But we as an audience can tell that he's not the right one for her. He's using her and he's not the guy that she's meant to end up with. Whereas in this movie, it's the same. We understand that he's not genuine and this is not romantic, but the difference is that she ends up with him. <laughs> the movie allows her to swoon. The movie allows her to be romanced, even though none of this is romantic. Like the scene that particularly comes to mind is by the fountain when they kiss for the first time. It's framed as very like romantic and flowery and you know, fairy tale esque I feel like the narrative doesn't. We'll, t we'll talk about it more later. <laughs> yeah, sure. We do get this 21st birthday party that's like a ball. And actually the narration for this party is Mia saying that she's never been in love. And I actually really like this distinction that she could have had a meaningful relationship with Michael and yet she knows that she's never been in love. That a character is allowed to say that about like their teenage romance. You're right. A lot of times romances between teenagers or like first loves are treated as the one true love, the one you're gonna end up with for the rest of your life, which is not necessarily the case for everybody. So it is nice. Honestly, this whole thing made me miss Michael more. I feel so bad for Mia's fate. Like, girl, get the fuck out of there. You don't need this. Go home to San Francisco. Like, Yeah, not to bring up what we were just talking about before, but this line also stood out to me as being a little bit out of place maybe considering it's being followed by this whole introduction about her getting ready to take over 
the throne, which means, you know, she's going to rule an entire country. This issue where she's talking about the downer in her fairy tale. Of course, just because she wants to be a leader doesn't mean that she can't also be on the lookout for her Prince Charming, as she calls it. But at the same time, I would think at this moment in time, that would be not the first thing on her mind. <laughs> yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, it is so funny the effort they put into the segue because it's such a long walk. And the funny part is that part about living in a castle like a fairy tale was really great in my opinion, because she also adds that she's going to sit on a throne and rule the people of Genovia. And I think this line does a great job at hinting at how clueless she is about the responsibilities of a ruler, because it's very much more than just sitting on a throne <laughs> and just ruling over a vague mass of people. And it's a great contrast to the person she becomes once we see her become a really involved leader who cares about the well-being of her people. So I think up until this point, it was doing a pretty good job but then with the <laughs> love life thing it just it kind of exemplifies at least for me that they're placing too much emphasis on the romance aspect whether you consider it romance or not during this ball she has to dance with all of the eligible bachelors in Genovia. It was so weird to me that this is like a specific tradition that on your 21st birthday you have to dance with all the eligible bachelors like you have to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's at this point, Mia's dancing with various people and she runs into this very charming young man who might be important later on. <laughs> <laughs> he introduces himself as just Nicholas, not suspicious, and they dance and she likes him, I guess. <laughs> he smolders, she likes him. <laughs> But the actual way they run into each other is that she steps on his foot and then they flirt and blah, blah, blah. I think it's interesting that Mia introduces herself just as Mia. Like, she makes the distinction to not use her title. And when he reciprocates, she later discovers that it wasn't as genuine as her offer of friendship, given what he wants from her is entirely to do with her seat on the throne. I think this detail, while its true vulnerability may not be on the surface, because it's just like a thing you say, like, oh, it's okay, call me Mia. But like, writing-wise, is what makes the eventual discovery of his deception sting even more. It's like, on her side, she's offering friendship, and on his side, he is using that exact vulnerability to gain whatever he needs to. Yeah, that's a great distinction. I think it's also really important that we get this first scene to understand why Mia is even charmed. She is charmed by this character that Nicholas has concocted right and like i can see it being hard for mia to distinguish between did he put on the character when he started dancing with her or was he already in character when she stepped on his foot like how much of a setup was the foot part because that part was like mm. very accidental and she's like how how far back did it go you know the lie and i think it, it has a lot of weight for the movie to have a strong first meeting for us to understand like mia's betrayal otherwise it's just like okay it's just some dude being a douche what else is for you <laughs> i agree so it's also at this ball that Mia runs into the villain of the story, the Viscount. And the way they run into each other is that someone accidentally knocks the crown off Mia's head and the Viscount catches it. And he's like, oh, you'll want to be careful with that. Someone <laughs> might try to take it from you. And when she leaves, he's like, someone like me. <laughs> 
which is like very on the nose. I guess if I were to read into it, it's interesting how the Viscount doesn't necessarily make a direct move to grab the crown. But what he does is take advantage of other people's missteps and try to gain an advantage that way, if that makes sense. I'm not saying he should have grabbed the crown straight off her head, but <laughs> it just goes to show he's like very opportunistic and sneaky and waiting for the right moment. You're right. But that's if I were to read really into it. <laughs> the whole thing is not very subtle. He might as well have a sign on his back that says, I am trying to steal the throne. <laughs> What's funny to me is like, that is what happens in the movie. He's not hiding it either in the movie. So the next day, she's still settling in. And they're still getting her suite ready, which makes me wonder if she's ever lived in the castle or Genovia at all before this. But anyway, she's exploring when she finds a secret passage to a peephole into the parliament chambers. And the parliament is made up entirely of older men. There are a few jokes about how one of them is nodding off and all. But I think it also highlights how inappropriate this governing body is to deciding his fate. And perhaps at a wider scale, all of the people of Genovia, even... The peephole from which Mia looks in on them is such a great way of expressing this imbalance of power and speaks to the present history. Over the years, princesses, for example, and perhaps young women in general, has had to watch from the outside as a bunch of men make decisions on her behalf. And I just really like the use of this peephole and the contrast between the secret passageway and just Mia standing and everything that it represents versus what we see in the parliament chambers. That's a great point. It actually does make me wonder why Mia isn't even in the room because she is supposed to take over from her grandmother very soon. So it would make sense that they would actively involve her in these processes, even if she's not the one to necessarily make any decisions yet. It would make sense that she's also in the room with the rest of the decision makers since she's going to be one in the future. But yeah, during this session is when the Viscount informs everybody that there is in fact another eligible heir to the throne, which is his nephew. And he believes that his nephew is more suited to ascend to the throne because Mia is unmarried and the law states that she needs to marry before she can become queen. And Mia is granted 30 days to find a husband, otherwise she will forfeit the throne. The queen is all gassed and she's like, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> While funny, I do like how it shows that Mia has affected and changed her as well. What I actually love is not the shut up, it's how the other people trying to cover for her say the exact same thing as the dude who was trying to cover for Mia in front of the queen the first time around. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I really like the callbacks to the first movie <laughs> and the, like really specific ones. Yeah. The one I really like there's this point where Mia is feeling down and Joe is like would it make you feel better if you called me Joey and she's like no, no Joe jo <laughs> which is what he said when he first met her I love that I do too <laughs> anyway so Mia realizes that she has to have an arranged marriage she's aghast and she like you know talks shit about it until she realizes that the queen had an arranged marriage and agreed to it and I really like this scene Clarice talks fondly of her experience but she doesn't push Mia into pursuing this path I just love this that every woman should be able to make her own choices and agreeing to an arranged marriage may be what made Clarice an 
admirable woman, but what makes me a one, maybe choosing to not do that at all and walk away from the throne to pursue what she wants from life. I don't know, the fact that women have to deal with these choices often in their lives, choices that come from an unjust circumstance, often concocted, say, by a ruling class or a class with power over them, and that every woman's choice is her own and no less respectful than another woman's choices, I think exceptionally depicted in the scene and same goes for the rest of the movie like they keep nailing this nuance over and over and over again whenever it comes up especially between Clarice and Mia I agree the scenes between Mia and Clarice I think are some of the most stand out in this movie because there's so much subtlety and in terms of communicating the themes of the movie and also communicating aspects of their character and the way that they've learned to navigate their relationship because in the first movie you could tell that Clarice and Mia having not really had any kind of relationship really struggled to maintain a balance between Clarice being the queen and Clarice being her grandmother whereas here you can really tell that Clarice has really embraced the role of grandmother and so even though when it comes to her own life Clarice takes her duty as queen really seriously with Mia she's learned to treat her with more compassion and more as like a close family member and a loved one rather than just a subject and her heir yeah Mia makes her decision fueled by something her dad said or like a quote her dad repeated I don't know I don't know where this quote is from <laughs> her dad is just like a quotable lines machine in both movies he's just there to say deep sounding things that inspire Mia <laughs> yeah but so she says that she wants a chance to make a difference as a ruler i do like that this establishes how much and more importantly why she wants to be queen and it ties back to her reasoning at the end of the first movie of why she would want to be princess because like this entire time i kept thinking you've never lived in genovia you blah 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 all of these reasons i'm like not only like i don't know why she should be queen but i don't know why mia herself wants to be queen why would she sacrifice you know her life or whatever for this and this line like clears it up for me at least. I already mentioned that it seems a little bit jarring to see Mia care so much about Genovia, but yeah, I guess in the previous movie, Mia already went through that arc of realizing her power and deciding to use it for a greater good. So yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's believable enough that she would want to make this sacrifice. So we get the scene between the Viscount and Nicholas where they scheme over how to gain the throne. The Viscount tells his nephew Nicholas that they will cheat to get it. <laughs> Let me tell you, even though I forget this movie every time after I've seen it, this one scene where he yells while he's not throwing but like bringing the dart to the dartboard was seared into my brain. <laughs> Nicholas is like, that's cheating. And he's like, yeah, and. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the Viscount's performance is so good at selling this really brash awful person mm. there's this very short scene where there's a like an intern security guy called Lionel and he's like being annoying and <laughs> annoying Joe which is funny but there's a detail here about how Lionel had connections through his family which is how he's been assigned to Joe that I think fits in with how this movie has been and continued to paint this inherently corrupt system of monarchy it's a prime minister's family member I think and they also make this joke about someone I think also related to the prime minister who was in charge of <laughs> renovating Mia's suite. I think it would be more of a point if the prime minister weren't such a benevolent character overall. <laughs> well, I think 
it doesn't matter if it's a good guy or bad guy. Like, I also don't think they're even making a statement about it. It's just like the state of things. Because it's like, on the whole, it isn't really about these two women changing the status quo. Like, they only changed like one small law. But like, it's them navigating the system that there's no like real right answer to any of this. Like, well, not supporting nepotism would be the right choice. Well, not supporting a monarchy would be the right choice. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's an inherently flawed thing that's happening. (laughs) Where's the guillotine? But Nicholas is invited to stay at the palace and so he shows up at the Viscount and this is when Mia discovers that the person trying to steal the crown from her is Nicholas, the man she met at the ball. Dun dun dun. (laughs) But yeah, once Mia realizes she's been betrayed, she stomps on Nicholas's foot again. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) It's like, you know how you were talking about Nicholas weaponizing Mia's vulnerability when he's doing the, oh, just Nicholas thing in the beginning? Yeah. The way they first met, was when she accidentally stepped on his foot. So it's like she's weaponizing her innocence and her ignorance in the beginning to kind of get back at Nicholas now. I really like that. I also really like that she weaponizes a private moment that they had. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I really like also how she is so clearly embarrassed in this moment. And I mean, she articulates that in the next scene as well. But that's like the heart of it, right? Like he like made a fool out of her. Yeah, it adds a human element because it's not just about the title and the political power and everything it's also a very human response that she kind of got her feelings hurt and she kind of got embarrassed and that would be the case for anyone and i think it's also such a harsh but true introduction to what life is for someone in her position shit like this is gonna happen people are gonna take advantage of you people are gonna try to deceive you and they're gonna make it personal and it feels like this is the first time she's been bitten in the ass by that yeah I also really love Mia's look here. <laughs> like, she's very styled after her grandmother, much more suited to the palace than her regular clothing that we've seen her in, but in a bright light pink to show her use. I think it's really cute. It feels so much like her seeing Clarice and being like, oh, is that how I should dress? And then, like, doing her own take on it. At least Mia has some good fashion moments in the movie, unlike <laughs> <laughs> Clarice. <laughs> But yeah, after this, Clarice is understandably baffled (laughs) by Mia's behavior. But once Mia explains what happened at the ball, Clarice is more understanding and comforts Mia. And she even makes the distinction, like, as a queen, I can't condone it, but as a grandmother... You know, she's like, I'm on your side. And as I've already said, I think it's so nice to see them being able to navigate this complicated relationship with more ease. I completely agree. Those were entirely my thoughts during the scene. I'm just so proud of Clarice. (laughs) She's come a long way. The scene after this feels a little bit random, I have to say, because Clarice takes Mia to her living quarters finally and shows her around her room and her closet and it feels a little bit out of place because it feels like in the previous scene, the main issue and the main villain have just come out into the open and to follow it straight after (laughs) with a tour of her closet seems a little bit weird (laughs) maybe if it had been more explicitly a way for Clarice to distract Mia and to make her feel better I would have understood but I didn't get that when I watched the movie no I didn't get that either (laughs) could have easily done that but they didn't but yes actually on top of the sweet and nice closet and everything 
Lily makes a surprise appearance. Yeah, she pops out of the closet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Mia tells her that she's getting married, and the only problem is she doesn't know to who, which was very fun to say. Yeah. But yeah, basically they go through this like slideshow of eligible men. Mostly eligible. My two cents is that she should have married the gay one because then it wouldn't be such a big deal if like they both have people on the side. Yeah, sure. The movie would have gone in a slightly different direction. But... Yeah, I feel like it would be less dramatic. I think it's like clearer lines, I guess. And can you imagine Nicholas trying to seduce her? Like Nicholas doesn't know that her fiance is gay, right? <laughs> so Nicholas is trying to seduce her like, but you guys aren't even attracted to each other, blah, blah, blah. And Mia's like, yeah, so. <laughs> like she already knows that because Mia feels defensive every time he brings that up, right? But like if her fiance is gay and they have like an understanding, she won't be defensive and Nicholas's plans are like moot. <laughs> yeah, that would be funny. If he's like, I'm gonna make you change your mind and she's already like into him and she's like dating him and he's like when are you gonna give up the throne then and she's like nah not gonna happen yeah but the queen says that Mia needs someone titled who can help her run a country without ego getting in the way so an attractive smart but not arrogant someone with compassion and then they indicate that they find someone and then we actually see the slide and it just says he loves photography and travel <laughs> The hallmark of a compassionate and not arrogant man. <laughs> you guys just listed off the highest standards ever and then picked a man and then showed the most boring like dating profile ever. That's like everybody's dating profile, photography and travel. <laughs> also, I have to say his photo looks very photoshopped. It's like his head on someone else's body. <laughs> I had the same thought. I feel like sometimes in movies or TV shows, they have a picture of the characters that's like a screenshot of the movie or the TV show, you know? They could have done that and it would have been better. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. They settle on Andrew and we see Andrew and Mia going out on a few outings. They go to the beach, they play badminton. And right after, Andrew proposes to Mia and their engagement is announced. They knew each other for less than a week. She says her birthday was last week. They knew each other for the length of a montage, <laughs> which is like... The montage wasn't even glossing over some of their moments. It is all of their moments. <laughs> But yeah, all of this is very heavily documented by the press. And even during the proposal, this very meaningful, intimate moment, they're intruded upon by the press. And they have to plaster on fake smiles to hide what they're saying so they can't read their lips. They could just be like insulting the shit out of each other. And be like, I absolutely loathe you. <laughs> Love me? No, no. <laughs> Okay, I brought this up when we were watching it, and I still stand by it. I'm sorry. But the ring is in a film canister, which is his interest and not hers. And it's not even a shared passion between them that they discovered they both like. It's his one of two hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> I still think it's sweet. It's symbolic. He's giving her a piece of him. The ring symbolizes the fact that they're going to get married and have a lifelong partnership, but the fact that he put it in the film canister is kind of like more personal in a way because it's like, I'm not just giving you this surface level commitment. It's like, I am giving you a piece of myself and sharing himself as a whole person. You convinced me last time and you made it sound sweet this time too, so... 
during the announcement of their engagement, Mia accidentally knocks over a flower pot and picks it up. And Andrew picks his up yeah. too, the one on his side. And I thought that was so sweet. It's such a cute way of showing the kind of partner he would be. <laughs> I really love that moment as well. But so now that they're engaged, the Viscount tasks Nicholas with seducing Mia. Yeah. At this point, Nicholas starts to doubt the Viscount's motives behind the scheme, but the Viscount, whose name is Maybury, insists that it was Nicholas's dad's final wish, and his desire for power is also depicted through his admiration of Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love how the Viscount brings Machiavelli up not once, but twice in two separate scenes. The first one was when he threw the dart and he's like, I learned this trick from Machiavelli. He loves him so much. And then in this scene again, he's like, do you know who you were named after? And Nicholas is like, I don't know, some uncle or something. And he's like, no, it was Machiavelli. Yeah. He's like a Machiavelli fanboy. He is! He's like a wannabe. <laughs> I love it. He's even got a painting, like a big framed painting of Machiavelli, which may as well be a poster on his bedroom wall. <laughs> Truly, it's just missing the bikini and the car. <laughs> oh my god. But yes, yeah, so Nicholas embarks on the scheme to seduce Mia. And he approaches Mia at the palace and questions like the engagement and stuff and whatever and they end up getting found in a closet because they were just like bickering in there yeah i think what makes nicholas's actions even more reprehensible to me and i think just <laughs> in general is the fact that he's either unaware or uncaring i think the former but he's unaware of the severity of his actions and their consequences. The fact is, Mia is already under extreme pressure and scrutiny, not just because she's out of place in Genovia, but also because she's a young woman. This has been reiterated to us over and over again. So much of the doubt surrounding her authority and capabilities is based on the fact that she's a young woman. She wouldn't be in this predicament otherwise. She would just ascend to the throne without this whole rigmarole. So with every unfortunate circumstance Nicholas leads Mia to, he's undermining her and her standing in the eyes of the parliament and Genovia and proving all of those people right that someone like her shouldn't have any power because she is too reckless or careless or embarrassing or emotional or whatever else. And it makes his teasing and seduction not cute. It's infuriating and it's a direct endorsement and assistance to the discriminatory practices Mia is facing fueled entirely by misogyny. And Mia's objections to all of his actions like her being like you're being so annoying blah 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 in the scenes it is taken lightly and i think that depiction is so true to life to how women would take issue with certain things and it's not taken seriously the fact that whether or not it's a fault of the movie is not really what i'm getting at it's that i was struck by how similar it is to what happens in real life i think seeing that on screen and especially between the supposed romantic leads it just made nicholas so particularly awful and i don't think that the narrative is unaware of this yeah i think you really hit the nail on the head because watching this movie as an adult, I had this very surprising and unexpected dislike of Nicholas because when I was younger, I found him really charming and I wanted Mia to end up with him. So when I watched this again with more awareness and like as an older viewer, I was shocked by how much I actually disliked him. And especially in this scene, I think you really pinpointed exactly 
exactly what makes him so slimy and what makes this whole interaction so uncomfortable. But once again, I think just to go back to what I was talking about in the beginning of our discussion, I think while yes, nothing is hidden, we know this is not supposed to be romantic because it's part of Nicholas's scheme to get the throne and everything the fact is that ultimately Mia succumbs to it I think that's my issue because time and time again in movies you see a woman being pursued by a man and no matter how much she says no it's not taken seriously and he keeps pursuing her and pursuing her until the no becomes a yes and I feel like it happens in this movie too because Eventually, Mia's protests over time become more and more undermined by her actions because she does start to fall for him. And I think I would have liked it if she had only started liking him when she sees glimpses of a more genuine person or something because otherwise it's the same narrative that we've seen over and over again and I feel like while the movie might be aware of this they're not doing anything to do better yeah the only saving grace I guess is that Nicholas changes and so I think the problem is like the change is up for debate yeah we can discuss that more when we get there but yeah I guess what I'm trying to say is that's not an unfair thing to say that Mia is aware this whole time of what Nicholas is doing so I would have liked there to be more of a gap between this relationship they have where they're like fighting over the throne and he's like harassing her yes and she's fending off his advances versus her realizing that hey here I think he's being kind of genuine and maybe he's not so bad I feel like the lines are too blurred yeah exactly even Mia overhearing you know when he was talking to Clarice about why he thinks he's a more suitable leader even Mia overhearing something like that and realizing that maybe for Nicholas Nicholas's uncle it's about power but he genuinely seems to care about the people and that's why he thinks he's better suited and maybe he's under the delusion that Mia is only doing this because it's her birthright but she doesn't really have any attachment to the people even something like that maybe could have prompted Mia to see Nicholas in a different light but we don't really get a moment like that no the other thing I wanted to say is how you were saying that Nicholas's actions really are more serious than he realizes and I think we can see this again and again in the fact that Mia is the one who seems to suffer more every time something scandalous happens between her and Nicholas. To be fair, the movie is from her perspective, so we do see her more, but we do see her face these very real consequences of actions that she necessarily can't be blamed for because Nicholas was the one who more often than not pushes her into them, but she's the one bearing the brunt of the responsibility because she should have known better, which is also very like a true to life thing. Sad. <laughs> It is sad, yes. <laughs> yeah. But for example, the thing with them being found in a closet, like it has huge repercussions for Mia. In the next scene, for example, we know that this has spread even to the queen who then questions if Mia has the makings of a queen. Yeah, that was huge. So like we see that these have far-reaching consequences and serious ones. And I mean, even without the scene, we already know that. There's this whole like thing hanging over Mia, this entire movie, like 
while we see hijinks happen and there's this looming thing that the fact that very trivial things and ultimately meaningless things they always have severe consequences for women and that's insane and with this backdrop in the movie of it being royalty and the throne and blah 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 it's such like a heightened sense of that reality yeah the context might be kind of out there but definitely the emotions and the kinds of experiences are very disturbingly real disturbingly real yeah that's a good way to put it but Clarice is expressing this to Joe. That was heartbreaking, the fact that Clarice questions whether Mia has it in her to be queen because just moments before when Mia decided to go ahead with the arranged marriage, Clarice was saying, you know, spoken like a true leader or a true queen or whatever. And it's like, in the blink of an eye, <laughs> it changed and doubts start creeping in. I think what's interesting here is that Clarice has to ask herself that. Like, she has a duty to consider that her granddaughter is not suited to this. But in this conversation, Joe ends up proposing because she won't be queen anymore soon enough. Yeah. He's like, forget that. Let's talk about yeah. us for a second. <laughs> But I really love the parallels of this proposal and the one between Mia and Andrew and how they contrast each other. One between lovers who have had decades together and another who have known each other for less than a week. <laughs> one in extreme privacy, the other in extreme public scrutiny. One ending in ultimate rejection and the other in engagement. One with love and one without. I really adore the parallels between them. I do too, now that you bring it up. Although I have to say, visually, it's a very similar scene because they're sat side by side and they're on equal ground and like a very balanced scene and I kind of wish that Mia had potentially pursued this avenue with Andrew because the movie I don't know whether unintentionally or not draws this dichotomy between fondness and love because Clarice had an arranged marriage as we've mentioned and you know she spoke of how fond they were of each other and that's when Mia's like but I don't want fondness I want love but looking at these two scenes side by side, there's actually a lot of similarities if you ignore the background noise and everything. It's like just these two people who have a mutual understanding, tentative as it might be for Mia and Andrew. I feel like it had the potential to blossom into something more. They just weren't given the time or the space to explore what could have been. I agree. I think visually they draw this connection between the two couples that I wish they could have seen through to the end. I think it's also even more so interesting that you can see this very similar relationship for both romantic and platonic love. I really like that, that they are both equated to one another. During the scene, there's also this moment where we see, I think, a shot of Maurice sitting in the sunlight while they're talking and like the lines of the conversation go on over this shot and I really liked how in this movie similar to the first one there's indicators of background life going on as we had already talked about in that episode it gives this impression of a whole world full of real people doing real things and we also get shots of like a groundskeeper running after the dogs <laughs> yeah running after the pets and we sometimes get these looks or interactions between the side characters or my personal favorite was someone brushing the teeth of a stone lion <laughs> i love that it's like little shots of workers going about their day. It adds this sense of not just 
reality but also i don't know like a strange serenity to the scene yeah it's the humdrum of that world it's great world building even though genovia is not a real place and i do have things to say about the setting in general i do feel like overall they do a really good job of making us believe that mia has this whole real country that she has to rule over like real people whose lives she's going to impact it kind of reminds me of barbie in the 12 dancing princesses where it really seemed like there was no kingdom for the royals to rule over like there were no people whereas here it's like very real people yeah speaking of like Genovia and traditions one of the things that Mia has to do is shoot a flaming arrow through a ceremonial ring so she has to like practice and she's bad at it and the arrows are going everywhere and I really like how this kind of is a visual depiction of how for someone in her position her every minute mistake will hurt more than just herself it'll have (laughs) dire consequences for everyone that sure is one way of putting it i think nicholas should have taken that as warning honestly when the arrow narrowly misses his head like (laughs) that's your cue run yeah and then there's this part where she meets with the people of Genovia. And there's a whole chicken situation, as they call it. That's like concocted by the Viscount. And then it gets picked up by the papers. And it's a straight up smear campaign. And like for a young woman to be subjected to that, which focuses on the supposed failings of a woman due to her incompetence, is I think very true to life. The predatory role of the press is a present through line in this movie. And having that with the backdrop of the fate of the country, I think possibly highlights the really rotten and reprehensible nature of this practice. Tons of her embarrassing moments are also tied to how she's not acting like a princess, aka how she's not ladylike, which I think is quite a fine depiction of how women are severely punished for not conforming to the very constricting role of what society wants them to be. That is impossible to even attain in the first place. But yeah, the fact that all of these things, you know, the rumor mill of her being caught in a closet with a guy, the papers reporting on this embarrassing moment of her in front of the people of Genovia, they're all smear campaigns helmed by the Viscount. And smear campaigns are literally one of the number one things harming women in the public eye. Like that's literally how so many women either lose their lives or lose their rights or like very severe consequences. Yeah, now that you mention it, the press is a very consistent presence throughout the movie. And in the end, actually, the Viscount's final move is to leverage the press by creating a controversy big enough to discredit Mia's authority. But on the subject of impossible standards, there's this whole thing with riding side saddle where even Mia says she also has to be ladylike while riding side saddle in this really disbelieving tone. And Clarice offers a solution. And again, I love how the history depicted through Clarice and Mia as different generations and just entirely different women play a part in the themes of this movie. Clarice tells her that it's a common practice historically to fake riding side saddle. There's no actual possible way of becoming that ideal woman that society wants from you. It's a trap and a facade. Every woman will always be lacking when measured to that standard and will always need a fake leg. (laughs) And building on to that, when things go awry and the Viscount basically discredits Mia for I guess looking for an easy way out of doing this side saddle thing her fake leg is revealed to everyone and it's like he's trying to make a point that she doesn't have a leg to stand on (laughs) (laughs) but it's like he's implying that because she's taking a shortcut here it would mean that she would do that 
as a ruler as well and not take it seriously. So after this, Nicholas tries to talk to Mia while she's crying, while she's in the stable, and he tries to make a joke, possibly to cheer her up or something, I don't know, but is visibly surprised by how upset she is, which goes to show how he really doesn't understand what at play here and all the insane hypocrisy and misogyny feeding into this whole thing. And I think it's a very well-depicted scene and quite well-written as well. Yeah, it does seem like a significant turning point in the way he sees Mia. Because I think even in the beginning, I don't necessarily think he was trying to make her feel better, but just to tease her and the way they've had this back and forth the whole time. Yeah, because he thinks it's lighthearted. Yeah, and when he realizes how actually upset she is, I think the point in the scene that encapsulates this whole turning point to me is when he apologizes because earlier when he was talking to his uncle the viscount said something like having power means not having to say sorry to anyone and the fact that he does end up saying sorry to mia and in such a like a fleeting moment as well it's not anything grand but the fact that he does it is i think a big indicator of him starting to see mia in a different light yeah and not necessarily like in a romantic light but maybe understanding just how significant this is to her and how much she does care about her role as a leader. I think maybe it speaks to his character as well. Like the moment that he sees that this is something to be sorry for, he like instinctively says it. I don't necessarily think he recalled what his uncle said or anything, but it just goes to show that they approach this situation in different ways like even though he's going along with what his uncle says that's not the kind of ruler he would be maybe because i don't think he sees having power in the same way as his uncle before this i only saw that he sees the scheme differently now but you're right i think there is also a change in his view of mia but joe and the viscount are who end up having a one-on-one. <laughs> you make it sound like they're sword fighting or something. They might as well be. The Viscount makes a jab even about how everyone knows that, you know, he has this affair with the Queen and Joe ends up threatening the Viscount over what he's doing to harm his loved ones, basically, who just happen to be the Queen and Mia. Yeah, you can really tell that by the end of the scene, Joe is no longer talking as the Queen's head of security he's talking about her as someone who loves her and i really like that he sees her as family first before he sees her as the queen yeah also i love the reveal of how joe discovered that it was the viscount who sabotaged the event yeah after this is where we get the scene i mentioned before where clarice and nicholas have a talk where he cooks for her it seems and it's like quite a domestic scene they're in the palace kitchens and this is where we learn more about nicholas as well the fact that he's apparently a true genovian because he was born and grew up there and we get a little bit more insight into why he wants to be the ruler and why he considers himself to be a better potential ruler than mia and when he spells it out that way i kind of understand his misgivings about Mia ascending to the throne. Not that that justifies any of what he's done so far, but it's interesting to get an understanding of what is driving him. And it's not necessarily a bad sentiment. Like, it's understandable that he's just worried about the future of his country. But again, 
Not saying that that justifies any of his actions. <laughs> Just to make it clear. Well, so the thing that Nicholas actually says is that Mia doesn't know the people. And he does. He says that he was born there and he went to primary school there. And I'm like, and then you left? Yeah, the phrasing is a bit weird because they also said somewhere that he recently graduated college or something and i assume that was abroad but to make it seem like he only went to primary school <laughs> in genovia is a little bit weird like why not just say i was born here and i grew up here i've lived here almost all my life it brings into question his validity for the throne <laughs> as well that's what i'm saying he's like mia has been here a month but i have lived here three months <laughs> Three times as long. Exactly. But that aside, my notes are like, I agree with Nicholas. But now that I'm sitting here, I'm like, maybe it's not that black and white. Like, maybe it is an interesting question of like, what makes a true Genovian? Like, am I like falling prey to some weird nationalist bullshit, you know? On the surface, I think I agree with Nicholas. Good point. I think I can stand by him when he's just thinking about the future of his country, but he hasn't really done anything to prove that he would be a better leader than Mia. So I don't know that we should be convinced that he would be better because what are your qualifications? <laughs> Have you studied, I don't know, <laughs> what was it, diplomacy and political science? Have you thrown your million dollar crown into the air? <laughs> Have you danced with all the eligible bachelors in the country? There we go. <laughs> Nicholas did not know what she went through. Being compared to a chipmunk, you have to go through that at least once to be a good ruler. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, what could kind of solve this issue or blind spot or whatever of the movie is establishing what makes Mia a Genovian. Like, okay, we come to know that she cares about Genovia, but like, why Genovia? Like, I understand she wants to make a change, but why Genovia specifically? I don't know the answer. <laughs> but I agree with you. It is an interesting conversation that gives us great insight to Nicholas's motives. And we already know this, like in the previous scenes between him and the Viscount, that the Viscount is specifically taking advantage of his perspectives to further his own plot as well. Like, Nicholas knows that the Viscount's weird about power and shit, but like the Viscount is also actively lying to him about some stuff, like about the dead father and blah 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 blah. Yeah. And yeah, we already know this, but the right Mia has to the throne is a question I've been struggling with since the first movie. Mm. <laughs> it's born solely from her position as a firstborn blood relative. Yeah. Which is an unjust made up rule in the first place. Like moving forward, we'll get to see Mia supposedly getting to know the people, which I assume is supposed to solve this problem and that she grows into this right. But I find it unconvincing and lacking depth. Personally, I agree, ideologically, true Genovian aside, with Nicholas. And the only acceptable moral way forward is for Mia to use her power to reform Genovia down to its monarchy and establish a governing body more suited to a modern, just society. But we're not going to tackle that in this movie. <laughs> but they don't make a case for Mia as the queen either. Just do something. They could have, is my point. Okay, okay no, my point is this. They think they did, but they didn't. <laughs> Which is shown in the next scene, which they have like a tea party, or I don't know. But Mia like mingles and it's shown like she's doing very well, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She knows the people, the top 1%. <laughs> exactly, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Even here where we see that she quote unquote knows the people, it's still a very specific kind of people. She's only getting to know people the monarchy deems important, the people who have enough power to decide Mia's fate in turn. Yeah. That's not knowing the people, Mia. <laughs> 
Yeah. The movie thinks it is, is the thing. Like, I don't know that Mia thinks it is. I think, like, if we are to disregard the fact that this is a movie, like, Mia's just doing her job in this scene. But the movie is framing the scene as if it is making a case for Mia's right to the throne, but it isn't. It actually struck me that, aside from a few instances, throughout the movie, Mia mainly interacts with these kinds of people who are in the top 1% of society. Even her bridal shower is filled with princesses instead of her close loved ones. And while I understand the need to interact with, say, the members of parliament when she's trying to make real change, the fact is that her actions as a ruler will impact far more people and you're right I don't think it is Mia that thinks this but the movie seems to think that Mia knowing the names of these rich people and their pets and their grandkids is her knowing the people when very obviously knowing the people means knowing the needs and the wants of the masses which is not possible to do within like a week or two that you've been there you need to live there you need to understand these people's lived experiences you need to broaden your horizons (laughs) But it does kind of seem like the movie brushes this issue aside by one having the scene where Mia knows all the people. And then I guess during the parade when she marches with a couple kids and oh look, she understands, she knows she's one of us, which honestly is not enough. Yeah. (laughs) And that seems to be like a big turning point for Nicholas because at that point he's like, huh, I guess she does know the people or whatever but it's like I don't think that's enough evidence (laughs) I think that's when you start your plot to overthrow the kingdom I will not have the queen being nice to kids (laughs) oh no yeah we we're slowly turning into the viscount where he's like oh kissing children blah 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 (laughs) you know maybe he has a point For the record, I am not endorsing treason, and I have nothing against children. Me, on the other hand, I'm already printing out the Machiavelli poster to put up on my walls. This is also another time when Mia has an incident with Nicholas. They like bicker and then Nicholas kisses her after cornering her and then they fall into a fountain so she emerges like all wet and stuff in front of like all these important people. And it does lead this time into the grandma wailing into Mia about everything that's happened. And even the grandma doesn't seem to acknowledge the sinister plan afoot. I feel like if there's anyone who can understand what it's like to be caught up in such a malicious plot, it would be her. Yeah, considering also the fact that the whole reason she invited Nicholas to stay at the palace was so she could keep an eye on him and his uncle and basically be in the loop about anything they're planning. It seems like she's been more distanced than ever since Nicholas started living at the palace. Like, she's having midnight snacks with the guy. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing that Clarice says is that you can't afford to lose it. Other people lose it. We're supposed to find it. People look up to us. We are held to higher standards of behavior. Well, this is, of course, about royalty. I think it plays very well into the theme we've been exploring so far. For sure. The next day, another event. There's an independent Day parade and Mia stops the whole parade when she's passing by this orphanage and she sees these kids gathered outside and one of them is being teased so she goes over and instructs them all on being a princess and gets them all tiaras and gets them to join the parade and this is supposed to be as we've already talked about briefly her getting to know the people I guess and proving that she's princess of the people I guess it does seem a little bit 
contrived to hear Mia say, to be a princess, you have to believe you're a princess. Coming from the mouth of someone who's just inherited the title <laughs> just because of the family you were born in, it seems a little bit, I don't know. As much as I have problems with this whole thing, as we've indicated earlier, I do like how what catches her eye is that the little girl is being teased and I feel like she sees herself in her because she's going through the same thing right now except at a much larger scale and she can't help herself in her situation right now but she can help this like other little girl but what follows is her working on this program to house the orphaned children in their winter castle and I like what happens here actually but I think this may be my problem with the whole thing is that it's almost like Mia is discovering for the very first time that there's such a thing as orphaned children and that they need resources and shelter and this is like her wake-up call and it's a little strange. It's like she's morphed into the kind of person who doesn't know there are things happening outside her bubble or something. I don't know. You know who deserves to be leader? Lily. She's more attuned to the things going on and not just because she stumbled upon it, but she's gone out of her way, it seems, to try and, you know, do as much as she can, even with her limited power. And I feel like someone like that should be leader. Yeah. What I do like, though, is when she works on this program to house the orphaned children in their winter castle and a parliament member objects that the castle is a perk for members of parliament and dignitaries to vacation in and Mia pushes back because it's dumb and he's an asshole. Like, it's a show of her using her power and privilege to make perhaps small but meaningful changes. Yeah. I think the key here isn't the orphans, but the fact that she's actively changing the way the people in power have been misusing certain resources for their own gain. This effort, for example, is her way of forcing their hand to raise enough money for Genovia to have a proper children's shelter, at which point the children will be relocated from the Winter Castle to a suitable shelter. When I was younger, I also remember this scene rubbing me the wrong way, but I realized on this rewatch that it's not about her providing shelter via the castle. She's specifically using means to aggravate the parliament to force their hand to allocate the right resources to the right places such as a children's shelter because they wouldn't otherwise. And the fact that the parliament and whoever is so shallow that the thing that will get to them is having their vacation house taken away. Like the fact that she is attuned to that and knows how to wield that to help the people is what I like about the scene. That's a really great observation. You're right, she does leverage their privilege against them in a way. And I think this kind of strategy would have made a little bit more sense to me if once again we had seen her be involved in processes like this. Like maybe she's observing at first and realizing that these are the kinds of situations that I'll be dealing with and that's when she comes up with this plan. Yeah. I also do like that her goodwill translates to real actions because that to me is more meaningful than what we saw out in public in the parade. Like that's fine but what is taking place behind closed doors is more important and in a way if the parade convinced Nicholas I almost wish he saw what she was actually doing to make real changes. Oh yeah we didn't mention Nicholas at the parade. He sees and he slicks men. And actually he tells her so in this next scene at the palace okay so this is the point where i think we're supposed to see like a change in him and we as the audience know about what nicholas has been going through like we see his like slow understanding and his change and whatever else but i'm not sure where 
Mia is coming from. Like, I don't know what would have told Mia that he has changed. That's where the gap would have been useful. Right? So I think this is like poor writing or a mistake or whatever but in the scene instead of the usually smooth and charming Nicholas he doesn't have any of those lines and is instead similarly awkward as Mia is acting but this is the first time we finally see them have a proper conversation without Nicholas actively trying to use her as a means to an end and Mia having to protect herself against his efforts to delegitimize her so I quite like the scene it's the first time I don't hate him yes for a brief moment I also do not hate him and then he continues to pursue her and then I hate him again. <laughs> but for now, he's okay. But this is also the evening of Mia's bridal shower. So much going on. <laughs> They've invited princesses from all over to join and they have this huge slumber party. I do love how we see these girls as just careless kids, not having to be proper as they would in any other circumstances. And I like how Mia acts as the person who provides that safe space as well. I think she'll do the same in future as Queen. To be honest, the slumber party scene was always kind of superfluous to me. But now that you phrase it that way, I guess that is quite nice. We get another scene with Nicholas and the Viscount where he tries to make a case for Mia as queen. And the Viscount kind of like can tell that Nicholas is falling for Mia now and won't be on his side anymore if they try to like sabotage her. So he turns the plot against Nicholas as well and deceives him and pretends to accept this change of plans. But instead, he suggests that Nicholas goes to see Mia only to set them up with the press. What I really like in this scene, and in previous scenes too, where he and Nicholas are scheming, he does this very openly in front of his housekeeper, and it really falls in line with his behavior so far, because he clearly doesn't consider people, quote, you know, beneath him as people worth his attention. And I think it's a really nice contrast to the way Mia treats the people working for her because when we see them, we know their names, they have distinct personalities and interact with Mia in a different way. And Mia even finds out very important information through the mates, as they call them. <laughs> she finds out that Joe is retiring and Joe tells her that Nicholas wasn't the one who framed her and they exchange this information by saying the mates know everything. So it's really the Viscount's arrogance and his classism his like contempt for those who he deems beneath him that ultimately brings him down because information spreads through these very people that he treated as invisible yeah there's this scene between joe and clarice where clarice is dancing on her own until joe cuts in which i think is very representative of like the journey that they've been on it's kind of a sad scene though because clarice ends up kind of rejecting joe's proposal not even explicitly but joe can tell that she is once again putting her duty before her feelings and so he leaves the whole framing of the scene with the table in the corner of the room and clarice just standing there all alone in this giant hallway is so sad so lonely it is i also really love that joe is allowed to feel and express this hurt because like even though Clarice is like doing it for 
supposedly noble reasons, he can still be hurt by it. And it's not selfish to want someone to put you first and to care for you, to even be selfish so that they can be with you or whatever. No matter how maybe flawed that feeling or that thinking is, Joe is as human as anybody else. And I mean, it must be disheartening that he sees her as a human first, not as queen, but she constantly treats him as queen and puts her duty as queen first. It's understandable that he wants her to be selfish for once, for her own good almost, because she's sacrificing a lot constantly. So this is actually the night she sneaks away to spend the night with Nicholas picnicking by the lake. Oh, I hate this scene so much. I can't stand it. It's not enough that they have to do this whole cheesy, rhyming Romeo and Juliet thing. On top of that, Lily is like, be spontaneous for once. And they're like I've already mentioned before, they're acting like he's her one true love. And this is following her heart and doing, you know, what's right for her instead of following her duty. And this whole framing is just disgusting. I can't take it. If they <laughs> They were going this way i wish they had taken more time to redeem nicholas but because they haven't i can't root for them <laughs> <laughs> i want to preface what i'm gonna say with i'm not rooting for nicholas and mia together but i don't think the movie frames him as like who she wants and not as her one true love or whatever so like she's like forced into doing all of these things right she hasn't been able to do anything that she actually wants to do so like any instance in which she can break free of those constraints we want her to do so because we don't want her to be like miserable or whatever like that's not necessarily being with nicholas it's just that the opportunities that we get presented with is at multiple points like to do with Nicholas. So like for example the scene with Lily, we know that Lily doesn't like Nicholas and at this point we don't think that Lily has changed her mind. She still hates Nicholas. She's just like this is a fun thing for you to do. Like can we just go sleep with the douchebag, whatever it is, but like something that isn't mandated by your duty, by your role. And the issue of Nicholas as a romantic partner to me feels very divorced from this internal back and forth in Mia just that at certain moments they collide because Nicholas is the one that's there is how I see it but like I already said earlier the moment where things change with Nicholas is too blurry it's like that moment where he's like not being an asshole anymore so I am and I have always been confused like where Mia is coming from in all this. Like, I think we are supposed to believe that she sees Nicholas change the way that we did. It's just that she didn't. The movie thinks that she did because we saw it, but she didn't <laughs> see it. Right. I can see what you're saying. He just happens to provide an escape. That being said, it's still cheating and it's just painful to watch. And I feel bad for Andrew. <laughs> but the next morning, she sees this hidden reporter who's taking pictures of them and thinks that Nicholas is the one who set her up. So she is mad at him and like thinks that he hasn't changed after all. So this is what makes me think like she must at some point think that he has changed like the way that we did. And the movie just failed to depict that. Yeah. But yeah, the press is all over it. And then we have this conversation between Mia and Andrew and they still decide to go forward with the wedding even after confessing their lack of attraction to one another. And I especially love that Andrew still is hurt by Mia effectively cheating on him because 
it's still a betrayal regardless of the fact that their relationship is like stale or whatever. So I do like how this is a more honest restart to their relationship where they're choosing each other again with no pretenses and choosing to embark on ruling a country together as partners and friends who care about each other. Here's the thing, what I also didn't realize is that so far they are under the impression that they're in a romantic relationship. Like I forgot or something. I thought they had just made an agreement. Like, I don't know why I was under that impression, but watching the scene where Andrew is so clearly hurt by her infidelity just really reminds me of what is actually happening here. And I love it. I love the scene. I like it too. I like that they communicate, that they have a grown-up conversation about it. And like you say, they're starting over with no pretenses. And it's almost like an even more honest relationship than before because before they might have kind of convinced themselves that they liked each other enough to enter into a romantic relationship but now they don't even have that wall between them anymore like it's plain as day they don't see each other that way yet they're still choosing each other so I like that I was a little bit frustrated that the focus of the conversation ended up being less what Mia did and the breach of trust between them and more the fact that there wasn't a spark between them because they ended up talking about how there's no fireworks and all that but it feels like Mia's actions kind of slide under the radar once they start talking about that. I wish it had been a little bit more significant like maybe Andrew takes a day to think about it but I guess ultimately it's a testament to both of their commitments to their duty that they still decide to go into it no questions asked. I had the same issue except my conclusion was they move on from like you cheated on me to Andrew saying but I still believe this can still work on a dime that I'm like this is suspicious I'm like Andrew wants this too much (laughs) he's gonna become a tyrant (laughs) I'm not even fucking with you I'm genuinely like that makes me feel weird why would you still want this yeah I questioned his motives and I was just like, oh, it's not good, Mia, that he still wants to. And I want to say, like, it's not good that this means you guys are not in a place where you can have a fight, like a real fight at length and be safe enough in your relationship to have that. Yeah, they're basically strangers. <laughs> On the other hand, it's like the scene is that though. Like the scene is them having enough faith in each other and enough faith in their relationship to articulate these issues. So I'm of two minds. <laughs> <laughs> what if he doesn't confirm until the day of the wedding? Then at least Mia has to suffer somewhat of a consequence for what she did. Maybe she's like the wedding's tomorrow and he's like, no, I still need to think about it. And so on the day of the wedding she wakes up unsure about what's gonna happen, whether she's gonna be queen or not and the whole future hangs in the balance of what Andrew says. At least, you know, it's something. I would like that better. I would be less suspicious of Andrew. But yeah, as minimal as the consequences are with Andrew the press absolutely lays into Mia. (laughs) The press calls her a naughty, naughty princess, which just reeks of misogyny. (laughs) Extremely infantilizing and condescending and fucked up. But yeah, Mia's wedding day comes around. We see her mom visit for the wedding. It makes me really sad how distant Mia and her mom seem to have become since the first movie. Yeah. They were so close and even though her mom wasn't perfect, they did have an ultimately good relationship and were extremely close. Now she has other priorities that have to come before her relationship with her mom and it just makes me really upset. I agree. We see very little of Mia and her mom and the little we do see is kind of negligible. Like you could cut it out of the movie and it wouldn't make any difference. It feels like they just put it in there so that we can complain about why wasn't Mia's mom at her wedding. You know what? Actually, the one flaw 
that I will admit is the fact that there was this really interesting, complicated, flawed relationship between Mia and her mother that had a lot of depth. And there's not really an equivalent to that in this movie. I know I've talked a lot about how they did a great job of depicting Mia and Clarice as representations of like different women and different choices and blah blah blah. But they didn't really have that kind of deep, flawed relationship that Mia and her mom had. Yeah, you're right. I feel like there were a lot of great things in the first movie that there is no equivalent for in this movie and compared to a complex relationship like that I feel like most if not all of the relationships in this movie are quite flat. The relationship between her and her mom was not just that they're close but that her mom has made some mistakes against her you know but they still love each other and her mom was like her safe space where she was allowed to express emotions that she couldn't as a prospective princess and queen and it's almost like an insult that the mom is in this movie because of the way the relationship is dying. <laughs> Diluted. You know what? When you put it that way, you're right. Mia doesn't have that support system in this movie. No one sees what's happening to her. Like when I was complaining about the fact that Clarice, for some reason, doesn't see this really awful thing that she's going through. Like, I feel like if Mia's mom had been here, she would have understood and she would have seen. And her mom would have been like, you've been hurt and I'm your mom and I'm going to take your side. Like no one was like that for her. Even her relationship with Lily doesn't have the same depth as it did in the first movie. If you consider, you know, how they fought and then reconciled and everything. Here, Lily's just more of a passive observer of everything that's going on. But even she doesn't become any kind of support system for Mia. And I feel like she could have because she's also an outsider to the royal life. And I feel like she also wouldn't give a shit about royal conventions. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, she encourages Mia to break the rules once in a while or something but that I feel like that's just not enough emotional support yeah but Nicholas chooses to not go to the wedding until their housekeeper tells Nicholas that the Viscount was the one who set them up with the press and so Nicholas hurries to try to stop whatever plant the Viscount is still trying to enact and this is also when Mia and Joe have their one-on-one that you talked about so you know she knows the truth now and Midway down the aisle, she stops and leaves and the queen goes after her. And they have a talk about how Mia needs to make the decision that is right for her. She shouldn't have to make the sacrifices that she's been asked to make is the truth. And, you know, the ones that she's about to commit to. The queen says, I want you to make your own choices as a woman. Don't make the same mistakes I did. Make your own mistakes. And I fucking adore that line. I love that it's all about choice. I kind of hate it (laughs) because I really liked what you said and the movie said before about Clarice and Mia having the freedom to make their own decisions and what is right for one person isn't necessarily right for the other. But I feel like with this one line where Clarice talks about Mia not making the same mistakes she did, it feels like she kind of undermines her own choices and especially her marriage with the king. Maybe she's referring more to, you know, her prioritizing her duty more than anything else throughout her life. But the fact is that marrying the king was also part of the duty. But everything she talked about before about her marriage and how they were so fond of each other feels like it gets demolished with this one line. And it kind of breaks my heart because as I was saying before, I feel like the movie draws this dichotomy between fondness and 
true love and it kind of veers towards the same old depiction of love that we tend to almost always get in media that love is passionate and fiery and it's chemistry and it's physical attraction but we rarely ever get a depiction of love that is maybe not all fire and passionate you know wanting to rip each other's clothes off maybe it's something softer and quieter that builds over time and I really would have loved to see a more nuanced depiction of Clarice's previous relationship where maybe in the beginning yes all there was is friendship and fondness but over time it became something worth cherishing but here it feels like Clarice dismisses it as simply a mistake and it kind of made me sad (laughs) (laughs) that would also make me sad I thought she was talking about turning Joe down yeah I took it as her like talking about her prioritizing her duty so like yeah that includes what she did with Joe which is think about her responsibilities as queen before she thought about her feelings but also it just seemed like she was just talking about that role in general, which also includes her having married the king in the first place. I didn't really think about that. I just thought she meant turning Joe down the other day. (laughs) (laughs) I think because Joe shows up at that point and (laughs) we're supposed to infer that she's talking about Joe, which is what made me think that. Also, like, I didn't think that she was talking about Rupert. May he rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) And I did really love that they show Cleary's valuing her relationship with Rupert, which started as fondness. And she said it was caring and it was full of love. She didn't even say like it was not romantic either. The thing is, she like calls Joe her true love or something. Again, it just feels like she's undermining her previous relationship because obviously you can love more than one person in your lifetime. But to call him your true love is a little bit, I don't know. To me, it doesn't feel like she's saying that her marrying Rupert was a mistake. Just because I married Rupert doesn't mean you should marry Andrew. You can't equate me marrying Rupert being a good thing to you marrying Andrew being a good thing. It's how I saw it. So Mia does call off her wedding and then makes a speech about the unjust law that is forcing her to get married in the first place and makes a motion to abolish it. And this move for change and the show of her willingness to make such a sacrifice in the first place convinces Parliament to side with her. And it also helps that Nicholas shows up to forfeit his right to the throne and show his support for Mia. The only line that kind of struck me as a little bit iffy is when Mia encourages all the male parliament members to think about their female family members. I didn't like that. (laughs) I hated that. The rest of the movie, I can't really fault. I think it does a good job of dealing with these issues, but it's just don't say that. (laughs) Anyway, after this, Clarice and Joe end up getting married instead of Mia and Andrew. Clarice in the most hideous dress I have ever laid my (laughs) eyes on. Honestly, with a dress like that, you might as well not get married. Like, if you're gonna get married in that dress, just don't get married. I don't think you need a big fancy dress, but not in a dress that ugly. Just don't do it. (laughs) But following this is Mia's coronation day. And right before we get this scene where Mia's sitting in the throne room all alone and Nicholas stops by and he's still slimy. Sorry. (laughs) He tells her he likes her and... I guess they reconcile and I I guess it's interesting that their final exchange takes place in the throne room. The one thing they've been fighting over for so long is the throne but in the end that's where they reconcile. I think it's an apt place for this celebration because at this point like it's been a while since Nicholas changed his mind and wants me on the throne. It feels very apt that they have this celebratory moment 
in the throne room of Mia finally achieving this goal that they both have been working towards for a while now. I guess it is nice that when he's kneeling in front of her in this scene, it's like he's kneeling as both someone who loves her and also as a subject from now on. He's like honoring that she is both and that she supposedly deserves this position and I guess that is kind of cute so it was a good decision to set it in the throne room but yeah Mia's coronation takes place and then we get this like epilogue about more people becoming members of parliament including Charlotte just fun and also the children's shelter being built so an absurd conclusion the Viscount's bedroom is covered in posters of Machiavelli <laughs> I don't think that's absurd at all <laughs> With like little hearts on them. Yes. <laughs> he, oh my god, he draws on his notebook. Maybury plus Machiavelli and then a heart around it. Eminem. <laughs> this movie's Eminem couple. He's got a tattoo on his arm. I don't think anything can top that. Well, do you have any snacks you want to recommend for this movie? Pear popcorn, which is apparently a thing. Finger sandwiches. Ooh, that whatever that cake thing was that Nicholas made. So, now that we've discussed this movie in excruciating detail, have your opinions changed and would you recommend the movie? Yeah, I think my opinions have changed. Because I think maybe I was conflating my almost visceral dislike of Nicholas <laughs> with dislike for the movie. Because I think that was one of the big things that caught me off guard rewatching this movie. Considering it was a big part of why I liked the movie when I was younger. So I think it really distorted my perception when I came back to it after all these years. But now that we've talked through it and discussed all of its merits, and I guess it does have some, I do think it deserves a higher rating than the one it currently has, and I would recommend it. That being said, I still don't think it lives up to the first movie. There are so many charming little details that make the first movie as full of heart and personality as it is, and also a good story, might I add. <laughs> Here, I feel like while some of those details are there. There are so many aspects that I think this movie just doesn't do as well as the first one did. One that comes to mind is the setting because in the first movie San Francisco was inextricable from the story. Like it was a character in the story. Here it's so much more generic considering it's a made-up place. I understand the challenge but I don't think they did as good a job as they could have with the setting as well as just the character development, the character relationships. With even the cinematography, there were so many instances in the previous movie where we could really deconstruct the movements in a scene and there were levels. No levels. Barely <laughs> any levels in this movie. It's like my favorite thing. How could you? <laughs> You're right. So this one just feels more bare bones compared to the first one. And even on its own, I feel like it could have done better. So ultimately, yes, I do recommend it. But if possible, just watch the first one. <laughs> it's better. What about you? My opinions have changed. I still like the movie a lot. The thing that has changed is not that my opinion of the movie has lowered at all. Just that I've always seen the first and second movie equally. Just because... I encountered them basically at the same time the first time around. So I didn't have any like preconceptions about, oh, this one is the original and this one is the sequel. Like they were just different movies to me. Now that I've thought about it, it is true that it's not 
as good as the first one. I think once we talked about how there isn't as complex a relationship as the one Mia had with her mother in the first movie, that really cemented it for me that the second one isn't as good as the first one. But yeah, I definitely recommend this movie. So that's all for our Princess Diaries 2 episode. If you have any suggestions for movies we should discuss on the podcast, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Instagram, the graveyard slot podcast on Tumblr, or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot. <laughs>